0: ever had a, a single event that radically changed the course of your life? Anybody in here ever had one single event that radically changed the course of your life? Maybe it was even like a person that you met, a person that you met that changed everything. I know when I met my wife, Jen, before she was my wife, it changed everything, right? Nothing was the same after that for me, or maybe it was an idea or a concept you grasped, right? Right? I mean, we've all had, you know, things like that that have happened. I mean, when you were a baby and all of a sudden the concept of how to walk clicked in your brain, well, that changed your life, right? All of a sudden you could begin to walk around and you became that much more of a terror to your parents because now it was harder for them to (laughs) keep track of you as you ran around doing all sorts of things that babies do. So we (laughs) – so – we're, we're in the midst of Advent season. As I just said, Advent is the coming of God into the world. When God comes, everything changes. And in the, the passage that, that Maggie just read for Advent, we heard that John the Baptist is preparing the way for the coming of Christ, the one who would change everything. And my hope and prayer for you this morning and for this Christmas season is that you'd be changed by the truths surrounding Christmas that we're going to hear about this morning from God's Word. Like the young girl that we're about to meet in the passage that we're going to read this morning, God's Word can change you forever this morning if you'll let it. Mm -hmm. Today could be the day that you'll leave here and you'll look back on years from now and you'll say December 10th, 2017 was the day that everything changed for me. If you'll, if you have ears to hear and to listen to what God wants. And by the way, I'm not just talking to people that are not Christians. I'm talking to everybody in this room, okay? Because there are, there are times and there are markers in our lives uh, where we need God to come in and we need God to speak. And I believe that God has a word for each one of you this morning. So it's real simple what we're going to do this morning in this passage, okay? I, I just want to highlight three truths about God uh, concerning Christmas uh, in the passage, and then we're going to look at how we're supposed to respond. Uh, as we go throughout. Okay. So three truths and then how we're supposed to respond. And I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to give you the answers before we even take the test. All right. I know whenever you were in school, you loved it when the teachers gave you like an open book test. Well, that's what this is going to be. It's not really a test though, because this is a sermon. So it's different, but I'm going to go ahead and give you the three points ahead of time. Okay. Here they are. Number one, God chooses people just like you. God chooses people just like you. Number two, God is calling you to get caught up in his story. God is calling you to get caught up in his story. And number three, God will equip you with all that you need. So God is choosing you. God chooses people just like you. God is calling you to get caught up in his story. And number three, God will equip you with all that you need. We're going to be in Luke chapter 1, verses 26 to 38 this morning. If you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles on the tables in front of you. Uh, And if you don't own a Bible or if you just need a new Bible, that's our gift to you. Take it home. We've got plenty of them. We'd love for you to take that. Okay, so Luke is the third book of the New Testament. It's after Mark, and it is before John. Uh, and the text will also be on the screen behind me as we read. So let's start in Luke 1, and I'm going to read the first couple of verses, and we'll get into the first point. God chooses people just like you. Here's what 26 and 27 says. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. All right, so let's go ahead and stop there, and I want to explain some of what's going on here. Okay, so uh, this is the beginning of the book of Luke, and what's just happened is that the angel Gabriel came to a man named Zechariah and told Zechariah that him and he and his wife were going, Elizabeth, were going to have a child. That child's going to be John the Baptist, and that child is going to prepare the way for the Messiah, okay? Six months later, right? So Elizabeth is six months pregnant, now Gabriel comes to this young girl named Mary. Now Mary it says that she was from Nazareth. We know uh, from uh, just historical research and from other parts of the Bible that Nazareth was a small, insignificant, looked down upon town, okay? Um, and one of, the, one of the interesting things is that in the book of John, when Peter and Andrew, this is like 30 years later, uh, they come up to uh, Nathaniel and they say, hey, Nathaniel, we think we found the Messiah. It's Jesus from Nazareth. And Nathaniel goes, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And he doesn't believe him. He's like, nothing good comes out of Nazareth, right? So Nazareth was not a town with a great reputation. A little bit like another town that we know of, right? So, you know, people a lot of times will talk about the schwa, right? And yet... Nazareth is the town where God shows up in right here. Mary would have been uh, – it says she was betrothed to Joseph. So Mary would have been about 14 or 15 years old at this time. Uh, betrothal was basically an engagement process. So marriage was a two-step process in first century Palestine. Okay? So the first step is what would happen is uh, basically as soon as a girl was eligible to be married, probably at about the age of 13 um, after she hit puberty basically – then uh, she, there would be a dowry that would be paid, so a bride price, and there would be a covenant signed between the parents of the groom and the parents of uh, the bridegroom. And then a year later, the actual marriage ceremony would take place. So Mary was in that between time; She was betrothed to Joseph but not yet married, and so 14 or 15 years old. And Mary, Mary is a female in a male-dominant culture. To give you an idea of the difference between males and females in first century Palestine, uh, females' uh, testimonies were not even admissible in court. So females were looked down upon to such an extent that your testimony wasn't even valid to accuse somebody. We needed a man's testimony because it's more reliable. I know a lot of the females in here right now are like, oh my gosh, have they ever try to institute that again? <laughs> I agree. I think it's a terrible thing. It also says that Mary was a virgin. So we've got a teenager, a woman, right, from a small, dinky town called Nazareth, and God chooses to show up here, of all places. And let's look at what God says through the angel Gabriel. Look at verses 28 to 30. It says, and he came to her and he said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, "Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God." Now that that phrase, "O favored one," uh, the word "favored" uh, literally is the word is the Greek word charis, which means grace. So a better way to translate that would probably be greetings, "O chosen one," or the one that God has decided to show grace to. God steps into this, this girl's life, and he's going to choose her to give birth to the Son of God, but it's not because Mary had somehow earned this right. It's not because Mary was sinless and perfect and that somehow she was a, a cut above everybody else. If anything, Mary was probably the last person that most people would pick to have the honor of carrying the son of god in her womb the phrase that um, gabriel uses and mary's response make it clear that god didn't choose mary because she was special even mary is surprised when god calls her oh favored one she's like me really like, what did i do to become favored what's what's interesting too is that mary did not seek out this role did she i mean for all we know she was just going about her everyday life right God just stepped into her life and said, I've chosen you, and here's what's going to happen. Uh, Many people today falsely want to turn Mary into a divine being or some sort of super saint who is to be worshipped or even prayed to. But Mary was a sinner just like you and I, chosen by God's grace. There's nothing special about Mary. There's nothing that makes Mary more worthy than either of us. She needed grace just like you and I need. Mary is not to be worshipped or prayed to, only Jesus is. And God chose an insignificant girl from an insignificant town to be a recipient of his grace and to take part in one of the most important events in history. You know, uh, I was reading about Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, the, um, kind of the, the history of it. So Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer uh, started off in 1939 as an advertising gimmick for Montgomery Ward. Anybody remember Montgomery Ward? The department stores. Why are you looking at me? <laughs> <laughs> because Kate doesn't remember it. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. So it was, I think it was a department store down the state. So anyways, it was an advertising gimmick. Uh, and then it didn't come to musical life until 1949. So Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer was a character created for an advertising deal. And then it came to musical life in 1949 and today, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer is the highest-selling Christmas carol at more than 25 million units. By far, the uh, the best-selling Christmas carol out there. And what makes this Christmas carol so well loved? What is it about this story that we keep going back to again and again and again? I mean, everybody who doesn't love to go to click on CBS during this time of year and watch cute little Rudolph, you know, with his shiny little nose, right? But I think the real beauty of the story focuses on grace. Think about it, right? Rudolph the red-nosed reindeer, he was, we know from the story that he was a reject, right? Compared to all the other reindeer, he was small and he had this big nose that kind of stuck out and, you know, everybody laughed and called him names. Rudolph the red-nosed reindeer could never join in all the other reindeer games, right? So poor Rudolph is kind of left out in the cold because of this defect. But Despite all of the other candidates, who did Santa choose when the fog rolled in that one fateful Christmas? Who did Santa choose? Rudolph, right? Because Rudolph had the nose that could light the way. The the weakness that was considered a liability by Rudolph and his fellow reindeer became the strength that Santa used to accomplish his mission. Rudolph was chosen by Santa by Santa's grace, right? But we like to think that we have a lot more control than we really do in life. We think that if we look hard enough for God and we live a pretty good life, and you know, we uh, that we'll find God and He'll pick us up, uh, He'll pick us out because of our usefulness. But the Bible presents a much different picture. Romans chapter three verses ten and eleven says that there is no one righteous, no, not one. No one seeks God. All have turned away. See, we have this sinful nature that is naturally opposed to being submissive to God. Naturally, inside our sinful nature, none of us wants to submit to God. We all want to do our own thing and rebel against God. The Bible even calls us spiritually blind, that sin blinds us. We don't go looking for God. God comes looking for us. And that is what makes his grace that much sweeter. Nothing demonstrates this principle better, I think, than Christmas. Christmas is the epitome of the story of God coming to us. God leaving heaven and coming to earth and and living as a man, living within the midst of the brokenness and the filth that we created because of our sin so that he could rescue us. God stepping into humanity changed everything. And maybe this morning, like Mary, you're troubled that God would extend grace like this to you. Maybe it bothers you that God would would be so gracious and loving towards you, and and you find it hard to accept the fact that you don't have to do anything to be accepted in God's sight except belief. I know there's a lot of people that have trouble accepting things like that. That's natural. I think we have a hard time accepting handouts. We don't like receiving things that we haven't— worked for, or that we don't feel like we deserve, do we? Why do you think that is? Why is it so hard for us to do that? I think because by receiving the gift of grace, we have to acknowledge that we need it, right? You cannot receive a free gift of grace without also, by default, admitting that you need that grace, which means you have to humble yourself which means pride cannot exist anymore. Pride has to go away, and humility has to come in for you to receive a gift of grace. You know, uh, we've been going out a lot. Uh, we'll go downtown to, uh, to, just to try to pray for people share the gospel, and we'll bring coffee or hot chocolate. We'll hand out just something simple. You know, like, we're, we're just doing it to kind of be nice. Like, we know that people down there are not going to, like, starve to death if they don't have our cup of hot cocoa. Well, we do it as a as a gesture and when we hand that stuff out, many people refuse because they're afraid that others might think that they're poor. How silly is that, right? You ever thought about how silly. How silly that we refuse grace, that we refuse God's gift because we're afraid of how what damage that might do to our reputation, or how that might hurt our pride. We keep ourselves from some of the most beautiful things because of our own pride. And we only hurt ourselves. Here's the deal. We have to humble ourselves, confess our failures and submit to God if we want this grace. And pride does not like to do that. Pride does not like to do that. My encouragement to you is do not let pride keep you from the joy that God's grace brings this Christmas. Don't let pride keep you from the joy that God's grace brings. So so God has, has chosen this girl, Mary, just out of nowhere. Right. So let's see what God chooses her. To do. Let's keep reading verses 31 to 33, and this is point number two. God is calling you to get caught up in his story. So the angel Gabriel continues, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. So there's two different stories going on right here. There's Mary's perspective and then there's God's perspective at the same time, okay? So here's Mary's perspective. Mary was just minding her own business at home and all of a sudden an angel shows up. Comes to her and tells her that she's going to give birth to the next king of Israel and that this this king's kingdom is never going to end. It's going to be an eternal kingdom and she's supposed to name him Jesus, which means savior. Messiah she doesn't know why she doesn't know all the details she doesn't know that Jesus's kingdom is not of this world yet for all she knows this is going to be a physical kingdom she doesn't know how she's going to get pregnant she sees a virgin she doesn't know how she's going to raise this king her job at this point is simply to submit to God and trust him like okay if that's what you say I'm just going to roll with it that's basically Mary's perspective and that's all Mary knows she doesn't know anything beyond that. Now, from God's perspective, there's something much, much greater happening that Mary doesn't see right now, isn't there? This is the Son of the Most High, the promised Messiah. This is actually an exact fulfillment of 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 to 14. This is a covenant that God made with King David. Okay, This is what God told David just pretty soon before he died. In 2 Samuel 7, 12 to 14, he said, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Are you noticing similar language? The exact same phrase. I will be to him a father, and he will be to me a son. Now that prophecy was partially fulfilled with Solomon because Solomon built a house for God. But there's a lot of times prophecy in the Bible there's a there's a near fulfillment and then there's a a far fulfillment, okay? So there's a partial fulfillment in the short term, but there's a fuller, larger sense in the long term. Very similar to what we see here with Mary's perspective and God's perspective, okay? So there's some things happening that we can see right now, and there's about a million other things happening that God sees that we cannot see, okay? And so this prophecy is being fulfilled right now. This is the king that God told David would descend from his line. The king whose kingdom will never end. This is no earthly king with an earthly reign. This is God in the flesh whose reign will never end. Jesus will usher in a new kingdom. He will conquer sin and death forever through his death and resurrection. And by doing this, he will rescue people for himself from every tribe and tongue and nation. What Mary doesn't know is that God is setting in motion the climactic part of his plan to reconcile sinners and to forgive his enemies. And she's right in the center of it. She just doesn't realize it yet. When I was preparing this, I could not help but think of the song. Maybe some of you know it. Mary, did you know, right? Mary, did you know? I'm going to read some of the lyrics from that song because I thought it was so perfect of a fit here. Says, Mary, did you know that your baby boy will one day walk on water? Mary, did you know that your baby boy will save our sons and daughters? Did you know that your baby boy has come to make you new? That this child you've delivered will soon deliver you? Mary, did you know that your baby boy will give sight to a blind man? Mary, did you know that your baby boy will calm a storm with his hand? Did you know that your baby boy? Has once walked where angels trod, and when you kiss your little baby, you have kissed the face of God. Pretty awesome, isn't it? See, on the surface, it appears that God is simply calling Mary to give birth to a baby. But, big picture, it is to play a part in the redemption of all of humanity. That's huge. Did you know that your story is also caught up in God's story? When God calls us, he steps in and he reorients our lives for his purposes, just like he did with Mary's. Mary's plan was not to get pregnant. That was not on her three-year goal list. She didn't make that her New Year's resolution at the beginning of the year. Try to get pregnant this year by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is not a planned thing. Okay? When God steps into your life, he's going to reorient everything. I mean... For all we know, maybe Mary's plans that year were to to learn to knit or to expand her pottery business or to win the town cow milking competition, whatever they did back then. But it was not this. God has something so much better, so much more exciting than our measly little plans for our lives. When we're born again by trusting in Jesus and becoming a new creation through the power of the Holy Spirit, our mission becomes Jesus's mission. Our plans now get caught up in his plans. Our priorities are now his priorities. Are you still caught up in your own plans for your life? Or have you rearranged your life for God's purposes? You know, I was thinking as I was preparing this, and I could not think of really a single instance in the Bible where God came to an individual and asked them for permission for him to work in their lives. God never asks individuals if they'd like to obey him in the Bible. He didn't go to Moses and say, um, Moses, I was just wondering, would you be willing to go to Pharaoh and ask them for me to let my people go? No, that's not how it went down, is it? He said, Moses, you go to Pharaoh and tell him to let my people go and I'll be with you. He came, Jesus came to Peter and Andrew and he said, hey, follow me and I'll teach you to become fishers of men. Jeremiah, Jeremiah. he told Jeremiah to preach the gospel, and Jeremiah just got rejected over and over and over again. And when Jeremiah st- uh, tried to stop preaching, you know what happened? He said, I couldn't stop proclaiming the word of God because it was like a fire in my bones. Paul, or Saul, Saul was on the road to Damascus, right, getting ready to go and persecute Christians. Did God, did Jesus appear before Saul and say, Saul, would you mind not persecuting my people and maybe coming on my team? No, Saul did not have an option. In fact, he strikes Saul blind on the road to Damascus, and Saul's like, you know, who are you, Lord? And in uh, Acts chapter 9, verse 5 and 6, he actually tells Saul, here's what you're going to do next. You're going to go to Damascus, and you're going to wait, and then you'll be told what to do. Those are the exact words from Acts chapter 9. He takes Saul's plans for Saul's life, and he literally changes his identity. Like his name changes from Saul to Paul, and he goes, yeah, those are not your plans anymore. These are now your plans. My story is similar. I had, I had plans for my life, and guess what? Eight years ago, they were not moving to Canada to come and share the gospel with all of you and be the pastor of this church. This was not a part of my plan. This is not how I saw my life unfolding. But when God stepped into my life seven years ago and I discovered that there that there was a God who loves me so much that he sent his one and only son Jesus to die on the cross for my sins and that he rose from the dead, he overcame death, and he is king over all creation. And when he came to me and he said, follow me, I did not have an option or a choice at that point. For me, I'll never forget the day, October 4th, 2010, when I... Truly surrender my life to Jesus. I don't know how else to describe this other than to say I knew I had two choices. It was either surrender to him and enter into this amazing grace that he was offering me or die. Because would, it would be better for me to have died than to continue rebelling against him. I'd be safe dead. I did not have an option. And, you know, the, uh, the all-consuming passion of my life now is Acts 20, 24. My life is worth nothing to me unless I use it to finish the work assigned to me by my Lord Jesus. The work of telling others the good news about the wonderful grace of God. If I don't do that, I'm nothing. If I don't do that, I don't have a reason to live. That is why God has put me on this earth. Why has he put you here? Why has he put you here? Have you considered that? Have you considered what his plan is for your life? Or have you been spending all your time scurrying about worrying on how to accomplish your own plans? John Piper wrote a book called Don't Waste Your Life. If you've never read it, I'd recommend you get it. If you know people in your life that want a good Christmas gift, pick up this book and give it to them. Basically in this book, Piper talks about committing our lives to what really matters. If your story is not caught up in God's story, you're wasting your life. I'm going to try to put this as frank as I possibly can. If what you are doing, and I mean what you're spending your money on, what you're spending your time on, what you're spending your energy on, what you're thinking about all the time, if it does not matter in eternity, then it does not matter. It does not matter. If we're spending our time on things that are not going to matter in eternity, we're wasting our lives. And my plea for you this morning is don't waste your life. Don't waste the life that God's given you. Don't waste it. He wants to work in and through you. Oh, but I don't know how he could work through somebody like me. He worked through Mary. She's a teenager from Nazareth who got pregnant. Before being married, you think some people in the town maybe talked, right? But she obeyed anyway, didn't she? If God can use Mary, he can use you. I'll tell you what, I believe with all of my heart that the woman praying faithfully for an hour in her basement for her lost family and friends accomplishes a billion times more Than the most accomplished CEO ever will in his entire lifetime. Ever. So if you feel like you're in obscurity this morning. Like Mary probably did. Don't worry. Because nothing that you do for the Lord is in vain. Nothing that you do for the Lord is in vain. Alright, I want to go to the last point here. God will equip you with all that you need. So... God tells Mary, you're going to give birth to the son of God, and Mary's got some questions, which naturally we probably all would as well, right? Maybe you've got questions. Maybe you know God has been calling you to step out in faith in your life, but what's keeping you from stepping out is you don't know how all this is going to work out. There's so many questions that need to be answered. I know God's calling me to, to trust him, and I know he's calling me to give my life to this, but what about You know, what about this over here and what about that over there? And how are these things going to be taken care of? Well, God's about to give us the answer. Look at verses 34 to 37. So Mary says to the angel, how will this be since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren for nothing will be impossible with God. So Mary's question here is not really a question of doubt but of practicality, okay? She's a virgin, so how am I going to get pregnant, right? Like how is this going to happen? Am I supposed to marry Joseph today? Am I supposed to marry somebody else? Like what are you actually asking me to do here, God? And God's answer is both gracious and incredible. What's his answer? The Holy Spirit. That's basically God's answer, right? You know it's funny. He doesn't really tell her how, does he? Like he doesn't really answer that question the way that we want that question to be answered. No, 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 God, you don't understand. We want like details, right? Like like, can you please line out your plan for me? God doesn't do that, does he? He just says, I'll do it. I'll do it. God has to do it because we can't. Here's the deal. God will never call you to do something that you can do in your own strength, okay? He won't. If you can do it without God, then it's probably not from God, right? If you can do it without God, it's probably not from God. He's always going to stretch our faith and call us to do something, do things, that we have to be totally dependent on him for. I I want to briefly talk about the virgin birth because this is a very important thing, an important doctrine, okay, uh, that I want to explain. Jesus – had to be miraculously conceived by the Holy Spirit because Jesus could not inherit the seed of Adam. Jesus could not descend from Adam. Why is that? Romans chapter 5, verse 12 tells us the answer. Here's what it says. It says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all have sinned. You can think of sin kind of like a a, a gene that is passed down, uh, except it's a corrupted gene that's passed down from one generation to another. OK, so when Adam sinned, that that sinfulness has been passed down to every single generation since the beginning of time. We are born into to sin. OK. And so Jesus, if we if we needed a perfect sacrifice, a perfect savior untainted by sin, then he could not come from Adam, could he? Or else he's going to have that sin gene, right? He's going to have that sin inheritance. So he had to be miraculously conceived by the Holy Spirit so that he did not inherit the seed of Adam. And in this way, Jesus is fully man, but God begins anew what he began in Genesis. He recreates. This is really the first time in history, or the second time in history, where God is stepping in and he's doing again what he did in the Garden of Eden when he first created Adam. God is taking up the creative process once again, and he's going, I'm going to step in and I am going to create a new line. <laughs> I'm starting a new line that is not tainted by sin, and it's going to start through my son, Jesus Christ. Fully man, fully God, untainted by sin. I love how one miracle simultaneously answers two big questions here. Did you notice that? From Mary's perspective, the question is, I'm a virgin, how can I get pregnant? The big picture question is, there is no one righteous, how can any man be saved? And with one miracle, God answers both questions right here. I'll show you, Mary, how you can conceive and still be a virgin. I will show you, world, how there is no one righteous, but I'm going to come to save sinners. The virgin birth. One miracle answers both of those questions. See, God called Mary to a task, but it was an impossible task. Mary could not give birth as a virgin, and she could not produce the Savior of the world. Only God could. And he did it by his power through a young girl named Mary. Anything of lasting value that you do will be by God's power, not yours. Your job is to respond exactly like Mary did. Look at the last verse, verse 38. Look at how Mary responds to this. And I think this is one of the most incredible examples we have in Scripture of faith. Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. I love this. Because when Mary asks God how, God, God's answer is the Holy Spirit. He doesn't actually tell Mary How? that's good enough for Mary. Is it good enough for you? Is it good enough for you, or do you need to know how? Do you need to know all the details and all the answers, and and, and no, no, God, that's not good enough. Your character is not enough for me to trust in. I want to see an outline point by point of your plan, and then I'll trust you. That's not what Mary did here, is it? It's, it's natural for us to want to know exactly how God will provide. But that's not faith. And without faith, there is no power. Now, maybe you're thinking this morning, okay, Jared. Well, if, if God would give me as much clarity as he gave to Mary, I mean, if he like sent an angel into my room at night and then he gave me a sign because my cousin who was barren got pregnant and all that stuff, it'd be a lot easier for me to trust him. It gave me a lot more clarity. I haven't had any angels showing up in my room. But here's the deal. You're forgetting that you have something that Mary did not have. You have the benefit of living on this side of the cross. Mary did not have the cross or the resurrection. Mary did not have the completed word of God or the gospel. Think about this. A year after Jesus is born, Mary and Joseph are still poor carpenters in Nazareth. Ten years later, aside from a strange visit from three wise men from the east and a move to Egypt, nothing unusual has happened. There's been no more dreams, no more angels, no more miracles, just years and years of silence. You may have a couple of times at best in your life where you're going to have what I'd call God moments, okay? Okay. Moments in your life that will, where God will so clearly speak and reveal himself to you that it'll stick out and you'll never forget it for the rest of your life. You may have a couple of times like that. They often happen at the beginning of our Christian walks, I've found. I had several of those when I first decided to follow Jesus. I remember um, one for me was when um, I, God had called me to go to Oak Ridge Disciple House, which is a men's home for guys that struggle with drugs and alcohol, a Christian men's home. And I actually went for three days, and then I decided to leave because that was my M.O. I would start something and then quit, and and I just wasn't really ready to submit. And I remember I I quit, and I was like, no, I'm not ready to submit to Jesus yet. And I got in my car, and I convinced myself I was going to go re-enroll in college, even though I had flunked out three times already. I had probably been through nine jobs in about three years. I was a loser, okay? I was getting nowhere. And so I'm driving to this town called Belton in Texas, and I'll never forget for the rest of my life God's presence came and it wasn't the kind of like warm and fuzzy God's presence. <laughs> it was like a, it was a, a kind of presence that gripped me. It was at that moment I knew. <laughs> and, and I'll never forget I felt uh, I, I got this image in my head that I felt like I was a mouse running through an open field with a hawk circling overhead. And what, what I felt by that is I felt exposed. I felt like I had just looked. Jesus, my strong tower, my mighty refuge, the God who loves me, who died for me, the only one who could deliver me from death. I looked at him and I, and I said, I appreciate what you did for me on the cross, but no, I'm not really willing to surrender to you. And I turned around and I walked away. And at that moment, I realized that would be the biggest mistake I would ever make for all of eternity if I did not go back to him. And I believe that was God's, that was God coming into my life and saying, Jared, you cannot keep running from me. And I turned that car around, and I called Joshua Harris, my mentor on the phone, the guy that had been sharing Jesus with me, and I said, can I come back? I'm ready. And that day was October 4, 2010, and that was the day that I got on my hands and knees in Joshua's office, a big blubbering mess, and I repented of my sins. The Holy Spirit came into my heart, and I have never been the same since. He absolutely transformed and changed my life, and he will do the same in yours if you will surrender to him and trust him he'll do it today. He'll do it today. Mary simply had a next step. There was no explanation. No idea how to raise this king or how he would become king. She had nothing to go on but God's word. But you, on the other hand, know the full story. You know the full story. You know that Christ came to die for sinners. And that he rose from the dead. You know that you've been called to turn from your sin and to trust him. And that he will raise you up on the last day. You know you've been called to go and make disciples of all nations. You don't need a sign. You don't need an angel to tell you what to do. 2,000 years ago, when a screaming baby Jesus entered into this world, God sent his message loud and clear. This is my son. Listen to there may be something in your life that you know God has spoken clearly about to you. that you've been delaying to obey because you want to know how. I've got to know the details. I just can't move forward until I have some guarantees. The guarantee happened on the cross. And it happened on the tomb, in the tomb three days later. God's guarantee that he loves you happened on that cross. If he didn't love you, he would not have left heaven to come to earth to die for you. And if he wasn't powerful, he wouldn't have gotten up out of the grave. I can assure you beyond a shadow of a doubt that he loves you and he is able to deliver you. You don't have to doubt that for a second. So what is it that he's calling you to trust him with this morning? What is it that maybe you have been delaying to obey? It might be a relationship that he doesn't want you to be in. Or maybe it's a pursuit that he's wanting you to take up, but you've just been waiting because you don't feel confident enough or, or you don't know how you're going to have the strength or how you're going to have the ability. Or maybe it's a, an idol that he wants you to let go of, something that you've been clinging to. I always tell, I always tell uh, the guys that I disciple, delayed obedience is disobedience. You know, when I was a kid and my dad told me to clean my room, doing it a week later was not an acceptable answer. This is not an acceptable response. Oh, but I'm going to do it, Dad. Well, that's not what I meant when I told you to clean your room. (laughs) Just do it now, right? Delayed obedience is disobedience. Are you willing to say with Mary, let it be to me according to your word? If you can do that this morning, that's the most beautiful response you could possibly give to God. And nothing, nothing will honor God more and bring him more glory than you just saying, let it be to me according to your word. Absolutely, that's right. God changed the course of eternity through a young peasant girl who had nothing to offer but her faith in a big God. What could he do through your life if you will surrender and trust him this morning? Let's go ahead and close up. We're going to have some discussion questions on the screen behind us, okay? Um, So I want you to uh, just think through what God might be saying to you this morning. uh, during the discussion question time, if you feel like God is calling you uh, to make a decision uh, or calling you to, to maybe to repent of something or maybe he's calling you to take a step of faith, then I want you to come up front and you can come talk to me. Or you can talk to uh, Jen uh, if you'd like as well. If you're just if you a female and you'd like to talk to another female, uh, you can do that as well. Okay, uh, But we're going to spend the next few minutes just discussing these questions and then we'll close up uh, with our closing song. Uh, and offering, and then we'll break to our 10-minute party. We'll have some food outside, okay? So let's go ahead and jump to that.